0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and today, is the second episode in a new series I began last week, entitled "The Why and How of Christian Political Engagement," and I am really excited about t- today's episode. If anybody wants a little insight into what's been going on in my life and 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 perhaps changes that they've noted in the way that I've, I've written and talked over the last year or so, then then you'll want to stay tuned. But but also, I would say to any listeners who. may have only a slight or passing interest in politics, I I hope the the foundations that are to be laid for political engagement in this series will be a great help to you in whatever sphere of life God has placed you, whether it's teaching your children at home or in a formal school setting as a a licensed teacher, working or running a business, uh, being a student. Uh, The things that we're gonna cover today uh, I believe will be of uh, great help to you as as well. So for those of you who may have missed last week's first episode or may need a bit of a fresher, I know it's a long time from one Friday to the next, but last week I said that all of life must be seen from a God-centered perspective. And I distinguished it a bit from a biblical or Christian perspective. And I noted that all worldviews start with some propositional truth regarding God or his existence. And, And here's why that's important. Our understanding of God will inevitably flow into and influence three things in the political world. Our political and policy perspectives. How do we understand the issues? Our priorities in the pursuit of the many things that could and should be pursued. And the way, the methodologies of how we go about pursuing our priorities in policy. It, and it must flow into all three of those things. So if you're listening and your pressing issue or, or concern maybe is parenting, well, then the same holds true for you. Now, what you believe about God will determine your purpose in child rearing. Or if, it, if you're on the job and have problems there, the way you look at work, the people you are around at work, the work you do, then, then that will flow into how you see what you're doing, which will flow into your priorities and your methodologies. Uh, I've, I've often said that uh, I've, I've been working my way down the corporate ladder for the last 27 years, and that's really true uh, from starting with a large law firm in Cincinnati to now working for a not-for-profit organization in, in a sphere of law that uh, invites hate and anger and all those sorts of things, well, that's just going about things backwards, isn't it? Now, I also noted last week, and this is very important for people to remember, uh, referencing Abraham Kuyper, that even the atheist begins with a proposition regarding God. The denial of God's existence is certainly a view about God, and as we engage with people around us, we have to start at the beginning With what they believe about God and realize that what they believe about God will determine everything else that they believe, in terms of particularly their policy views, their priorities in those policy views, and their methodology. So, what I then did last week is I asked if what Christians actually believe about God and whether uh, what today passes as the gospel of God is actually God-centered or man-centered. And I gave a couple of, of examples about that. And we, we've spoken about this several times since the February 19th episode with Dr. Andrew Sandlin. If you haven't listened to it, I would encourage you to go back and check it out. But he spoke about the difference between Genesis 1 and 2 Christians and Genesis 3 Christians. and And by that, he was referring to the place in the Bible at which our understanding of the gospel most likely starts. Does it start in Genesis 1 and 2 or really start in Genesis 3? And, and today, we're going to see how where we start becomes critical to the way we see things. And in time, uh, I will directly tie this to our view of law and government and politics. But, but before I do, let me interject a personal word here. If what I've just said seems a bit abstract, seems a bit obtuse or irrelevant. I mean, why would you start a series on the why and how of Christian political engagement with Genesis 1-1? And why would you lay down a brief sketch of what the Bible says about God prior to creation? Well, then hang in there. You are in the same place that I was most of my political life. As I've said several times over the last few weeks, the doctrine of creation is fundamental to Christianity and all that Christianity encompasses. And that's a big question today. What does Christianity encompass? What's included within it? A failure to get Genesis 1 right is what has produced a tendency, growing with every political and social controversy, to limit that which Christianity encompasses. It explains why, for example, pastors don't want to talk much about politics or government or law. But uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We'll we'll come back to these points in a different episode. But I also want to say that we won't get a right understanding of creation, or we won't get our understanding of creation right, if we don't have a right understanding of who God is before the creation of anything. And, And to be honest, that's, that's where I was short all my life. Is Yes, God's in the beginning. God created. Lots of controversy over how he did it. So let's skip over to the real problem here that men are sinners were, we're against God and we need to be reconciled to God. So for convenience right now, I'm going to call this idea of getting a right understanding of who God is before creation as a doctrine of God. And I assure you, if someone had asked me what my doctrine of God was a few years ago, I would have had no clue to what they were really asking. I would have said something mirroring the statements about the gospel that I read on last week's episode. I'm not gonna repeat them here. But spending time on who God is, apart from creation, is the development of a God-centered worldview. And what I found is that as I did that, as I stopped worrying so much about all the specific issues, but saying, God, I want to know who you are, who you are, that not just in relation to your creation, but who you are prior to your creation, that, that determined your creation, your work in creation, then everything began to change, at least for me. Uh, but again, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself today. So so let's pick up where we left off last week about what Christians really believe the gospel is about and how a Genesis 1 worldview and, and, and understanding affects everything. Here's what Dr. Grant said at Restoring the Vision back on May 15th about the importance of the creator-creature or creation distinction, which to be honest, most professing Christians would propositionally affirm, Yes, God's the Creator. This is His creation. We're His creation. We're the chief of His pastures. But notice what he says in this clip of what that means in relation to public policy.
1: In other words, we're to rely on the power of God. We're to see every issue, every decision, all of life through the lens of the glory and the majesty of God. Because God is God and we are not. That means that from a policy perspective, everything begins not with anthropology but with theology. Every time we come to a question of what should government do, what should our local community do, what should our county commissioners do, what should our city aldermen do, our first question ought to be who is God and what has he done and what are the implications of that to the myriad of issues that we face.
0: Wow. How many politicians, I mean, how many Christians, even pastors, would start there with theology when it comes to political and social issues of our day, with who God is and the glory of God. Uh, To be honest, you can't start there, or maybe I should say you're not likely to start there if your gospel, if your theology, doesn't start in Genesis 1. Now, from this perspective, I want to give you another clip from Restoring the Vision by Dr. Grant regarding the nature of the gospel predominantly preached within evangelicalism, and and then I want to dissect it a bit.
1: Now, I want you to uh, tell me if you recognize this. The Old Testament was good for its time, but it's far inferior to the New Testament. The Jews are God's earthly, fleshly people. The church are His spiritual, heavenly people. Promises to the Jews are physical promises, but the promises uh, to the church are all heavenly promises and not for this life, for this earth. The Old Testament law was given to the Jews and the New Testament, especially Paul's writings, were given to the church. You recognize this? A man himself is composed of three parts. Body, soul, and spirit. The body is corrupt, can't be redeemed in this life. A soul and the spirit are linked together and the great goal is that at our death, the soul and the spirit will be released from the body and will fly uh, to the heavens in order to be with the Lord himself. Are you notice this? The world is getting worse and worse, and our hope isn't in this life. Evil will triumph in human history until Jesus returns. Therefore, any attempt by us to influence the culture of the world for the Lord and his kingdom is doomed to failure and a waste of time. We don't confront cultural evil. We escape from it. You don't polish brass on a sinking ship. There will be a resurrection one day, to be sure, but that's after the second advent, the second coming of Jesus. Anyway, but the really important thing is being with the Lord, not the resurrection, whose rationale isn't exactly clear. Because the physical body in this life is so evil, we must be very careful to avoid its appetites. We must be very cautious about enjoying sex, and we must not consider food in the physical world as all that important the, our ideal is almost to be abstemious, abstain from delightful body, bodily activities as much as possible so that we can be wholly given over to the Lord. What Andrew Sandlin says is um, that this is a summary of much of evangelicalism, and the entire paradigm is wrong. Despite despite what many Christians believe, this is not the gospel. This is Gnosticism.
0: And then Dr. Grant said something else that was equally astounding to me. Uh, Listen carefully, particularly as he describes John 3.16.
1: That's not what the Bible says. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says God so loved the world. How do we filter this that clear declaration that God so loved the world and translated into Jesus loves me. I mean, Jesus does love me, but he didn't come just to save me. He didn't come just to save you. He came to make everything whole again. He came to restore every broken thing. But he came to recreate fallen, broken creation. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he's describing the great work of the atonement of Christ, says that all of creation groans for the day of redemption. It's why when we get to the end of the Bible, what we see is not a bunch of saints sitting around in cute little togas, chubby like cherubs plucking on harps. What we see is not that we go to be with him but that He comes to be with us in a new heavens and a new earth where there are no more tears where there is no need for sun, moon, and stars for He Himself is the brightness and the glory of the Most High God.
0: Now, I, I would just tell you the interpretation that He just gave us of John three sixteen, saying it wasn't the gospel was indeed what I understood the gospel to be almost all my life. And I'll submit that I'm probably not the only one. Had I heard Dr. Grant say what he just said as recently as three years ago, I would have been stunned. I would have said, oh, no, that can't be true. God died for the whole world, that, that all men would, would be able to be saved if they would just choose to believe. And and, and maybe that's where you were. You, you were stunned to hear what he had to say. But really, what he's saying here is that your view of John three sixteen flows from where you start your theology or your doctrine or your worldview. When you start the story of the gospel from an anthropological viewpoint or perspective, what he talked about in the last clip, rather than a theological one, who is God perspective, then you, you're going to see the whole of scripture differently. Starting with anthropology, me, you, the story of man rather than God's story, will be our tendency when we don't put Genesis 3 in the context of Genesis 1 and 2. Now, now let me say that again because it's, it's so important. The understanding of John three sixteen depends upon where we start our understanding of the gospel. And, and the view that I grew up with, the understanding that I grew up regarding John 3.16 really flows from starting the gospel with an anthropological viewpoint or perspective rather than a theological who-is-God perspective. We will tend to always start with anthropology. Me, the story of man rather than the story of God and who God is if we don't put Genesis 3 in the context of Genesis 1 and 2. Now, what happened for me is I began to realize that what Dr. Grant said has been said by many others before him. And I I want to just give you a little perspective on this verse so that perhaps you'll see how starting in Genesis 1 versus starting with Genesis 3 changes the way you look at the word world. Now, in the Scripture, in the Scripture, we see that the word world is used in multiple ways, and, and it's used that way in, in the book of John as well. But, but here are the three ways. There's kind of a neutral usage of the term uh, world when it refers to the inhabited world without reference to the quality of men or the uh, distinctions between men, between the seed and descendants of the first Adam and those of the second seed, uh, Jesus, as the second Adam and last man, uh, just, just men, people, okay? That's how I was taught to understand the word world in John 3.16. But we, we know there's also another understanding that's uh, what we might call the ethical-spiritual distinction, where we walk after the fashions and the ways of the world and not after the spirit, not based upon uh, a heavenly understanding of reality. So there's a, an ethical aspect to the word world. And, and then there's a third one that, to be honest, I, I, never, I never got, just never got because I grew up with Genesis 3 being the starting place for the gospel. Now, let me me read something here to you from a book by Henry R. Van Til. And uh, he taught, I think, at, at Calvin College. And he says this, We are never put into a dualistic position between choosing to appreciate the earth and the fullness thereof, because it's all gods, and hating the earth, hating the world, and waiting to escape from it. Dualism, which we'll talk about in another episode, and Gnosticism is, I believe, rampant within evangelicalism. And that has real consequences for everything, including, as we'll see in future weeks, with political engagement. So, what he says in this book is, is, is that it would be an egregious error to conclude the Bible presents us with a paradox theology concerning the world, blowing hot and cold at the same time. Uh, we should be involved in the world, we should be making, uh, you know, transforming things, changing things, fighting for things, standing for things, but yet we need to escape the world and go off to heaven. We, we do not have that kind of paradox, that kind of dualism is not given to us in Scripture but we'll wind up there if we don't get the understanding of the word world right, which Dr. Grant is speaking to here. So Van Til continues, the world is also presented in scripture as an adornment fashioned by the divine artist in the act of creation for his own enjoyment. Citing Colossians 1.17, Revelations 4.11, Psalm 19.8 and Job chapters 38 through 41. As such, the world is a cosmos, a symphonic masterpiece, a harmonious effulgence of the divine creator, the very opposite of chaos and discord. In relation to time, the world is designated as an aeon, for it's not only a work of art, but also history. An aeon would be the Greek word for what we would call an age. The cosmos has both a vertical and a horizontal dimension. God made this world of beauty for himself, and it is a mirror of his perfections, not only in the creative act, but also in its continued existence. And there's a point we may come back to at some other time, but we'll pass on for it today. God loves this world, all of its hidden and invisible reality, the whole of the stellar universe, for it is his possession. And what he cites here is John three sixteen and Psalm fifty twelve and Psalm one hundred three twenty-two. He continues on, but through sin this world lost its harmony, so that it groans and travails in pain. He cites there Romans eight twenty-two. Remember, he said that, that creation itself was, was put under a curse that's groaning because of the fall of man. The man himself was not cursed. The sapient was cursed, and the earth was put under a curse. And we, we fail often to draw that uh, distinction. Man was fallen, but he wasn't cursed. If he was cursed, there would be no reverse of the curse. Okay? I'd never really thought about that either, but anyway. So, he says, But God so loved the world that he sent his Son, John three sixteen to reconcile all things unto the Father, Colossians 1.20, so that Christ became the propitiation for the sin of the whole world, John 2.2. The contention that Christ died for all, which is really sort of how I understood what Christ was doing, but only those who choose for God are saved, does despite to the sovereign character of God and denies his power to execute what he has willed. So see, what he's saying here is, if you don't go back to who God is in the beginning, you'll begin to get things wrong when you start with anthropology. And so he says that if you take this view, you will logically end up in universalism, the teaching that all men are saved. So... I'm not going to get into why that is so today, I'll leave that for perhaps you to ponder and think over how it comes to that place. But the reality is, my friends, we need to understand that Jesus is the cosmic creator through whom the world came to be, by whom it holds together, and he is therefore a cosmic redeemer. So Jesus did not, as Dr. Grant said, come strictly and solely to snatch a few firebrands from the pit of hell, but to restore to himself his creation, to restore that harmony that was lost, and to finish the task given to the first Adam that will be completed by Christ, the second Adam, and his descendants. Thank you for joining me, and I'll look forward to having you join me again next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's FACTennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FACTennessee.